Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey everyone, welcome into the birthday party. Is this is this the birthday? Is this 200? Episode 200. 200, look at that. And I mean, we get paid, we have a great contract. We get paid a million dollars an episode. So we've made a lot of money. Yeah, we're just banking it, but we're giving it all to the poor. That's <laughs> way to be topical. <laughs> Good. We're in Luke, this episode three of the Luke series. And last time we made it all the way through Luke chapter seven. What were some of the things that we talked about last time? We really, I hope, delved in deeply into the teachings of Jesus and the gospel of Luke. And we're going to go in there to, the same way today stressing Luke's understanding of Jesus's teaching, namely that we are to be people of love and love looks like the caring for the other, laying down one's life for the sake of the other. But the other in this Greco-Roman cultural context is the one that's beneath you. The one that gives you no social advantage or economic advantage, the one that cannot pay you back, give to that person without expecting anything in return. And this is revolutionary and, and countercultural and transcends everything that they're expecting. And it's extremely important to remember that this is written to a man named Theophilus, whom Luke addresses as most excellent Theophilus, which indicates that this man's a member of the equestrian order in Rome, very high, probably one of the 3% of the leadership in the Roman Empire, the rich of the rich. And Theophilus is going, okay, how do I do this? What do I do? If I give to everyone who asks of me, everyone's going to ask of me. And what does this mean for us? And so this nature of Jesus' teaching is radical. And I really want, I think hopefully by the time we're done with today's episode, for us to go, all right, yeah, what does this mean for us in the church today? Because it really does hit home hard. And it really is going to challenge everything that we have been taught and believed, especially if you come from a generic evangelical church. We talked about in our first episode, actually, the centurion episode in Luke chapter seven. It's a beautiful example of this benefactor patronage system. Here's a Roman centurion. He's got a hundred soldiers. It's a border city in Capernaum. And he has to keep the peace in Capernaum amongst these Jewish people. How am I going to win their favor so that they won't hate me because I'm a Roman soldier? I know what I'll do. I'll build them a synagogue. And now they're in my debt because I did this for them. So the centurion's servant becomes sick and the Jewish people come up to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, he's a good man and he built a synagogue for us, meaning we owe him. So we're going to call on you to do us a favor and take care of this man's servant. The problem for the man was if Jesus comes into my home, then I'm in his debt and I don't want to be in Jesus's debt. Mm -hmm. And I didn't do anything for Jesus. I did something for these people. So he comes to Jesus and said, hey, here's the deal. I rule over 100 people, and if I command them, they'll do what I say. And I know who you are, and if you just say the word, my servant will be healed. It's an example of his faith, but it's also this example of, but I'm not sure I want you to come to my house because then I'm going to be in your debt. I don't think that's a good idea. But the reality is this Roman centurion is an example of someone who is poor because he has faith in Jesus. The reality of that story, I think it's nine or 10 verses long in Luke chapter seven, the first 10 verses. Mm -hmm. The miracle is not the point. Luke only mentions the miracle like in the very last verse. Oh, and by the way, Jesus went ahead and healed the guy's servant. 
the point of the story was this man's faith. And Jesus replies by saying, I have not found such great faith in all of Israel. All right. So then similarly, you continue on in chapter seven, you have the story about the widow's son who Jesus raised. And it's not merely that, like you said, the miracle is the big deal. It's that now this woman who is a widow, who is going to be someone who needs to be taken care of and without her son, what does she have? Now she has a son who's able to care for her again. And so she's no longer poor. You then continue out and finish out chapter seven with the sinful woman or a prostitute or, or, you know, whatever she might be, there's something negatively attached to her, but she performs this act for Jesus. That was wonderful. Jesus forgives her sins. Your faith has saved you. And we might want to over sola fide this and make this like a, a, a justification thing or, you know, but it's like, no, this is talking about something else, how she is being restored in a way as right. well. Jesus is restoring her to society. Yeah. He says to her at the end, uh, go in peace. Mm -hmm. And this go in peace right, is be shalom, restored right? to society, mm -hmm. be restored to who you, who you are uh, back in the civilization as a, as a prostitute or whatever she was. She's not going to be accepted into society. And Jesus is welcoming her back into society as he forgives her. Mm -hmm. So what I would add then is that Jesus's command to love is not something that's just optional. It's, it's not something that, well, you should do this. What Luke is trying to get us to understand is that love is the essence or the nature of his kingdom. And this love, as I mentioned at the beginning, is this love that lays down its life for the sake of the other, but in a sense that is concerned about their wholeness, concerned about their well-being, restoring them to society and restoring them to their community. The episode with the woman is just a, a beautiful illustration of that. He doesn't just forgive her sins. He restores her to society in the midst of this meal at the home of Simon the Pharisee that, that she interrupted. Okay. So then in the middle of this in chapter seven, we all of a sudden jump into this John the Baptist story is this sandwiching kind of like what we talked about in Mark or something? Yeah, it's different not happening? sandwiching in the sense that Mark does it because Luke doesn't seem to be doing the same thing okay. intentionally, but that's right. But nonetheless, it's still illustrating for us this idea of what's the nature of this kingdom. We mentioned this on our first episode that Mary and Zacharias' song were these nationalistic songs about you've come to set the humble free and, and to rebuke those who are proud and arrogant. And that what they meant by that is we, the Jewish people, are the humble ones mm -hmm. and the oppressed ones. And those Romans are the ones who are the arrogant and proud. And so it's this nationalistic thing. Now, we mentioned already, if anybody knows who Jesus is, it's got to be John the Baptist, mm -hmm. as we mentioned. Their cousins, yeah. Yeah. Well, and he leapt in the womb when, when mm -hmm. he was six months in utero, when Mary walks in the room before Elizabeth even knew who was at the door. Uh, in the gospel of John, we read that he saw the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus when he was when he baptized. He knows who Jesus is, but what Jesus is doing is not, is not matching up to what, the, what he was expecting. If you're the Christ, where's your army? Hmm. If you're the Christ, when are you going to seize power? You know, when are you going to Jerusalem to take power and to seize control and to throw the Romans out? As it is, I'm in prison because of Herod, a Roman who's going to maybe even chop my head off and I'm your cousin. So if that's the way I am. So Jesus says to those whom John the Baptist had sent, and he says, look, go report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor of the gospel preach to them. Jesus answers, this is what my kingdom looks like. Mm -hmm. And you should have known better, obviously, if 
Luke's readers are remembering, of course, Luke chapter four. Oh yeah, that's what he said when he entered the synagogue in Nazareth that this is what was going to happen. But for Jesus, this is the nature of the kingdom of God and it's here, obviously, but it's not coming through military victory or by oppressing the others. In fact, the kingdom of God is simply this state of justice where everyone has at least what they need. Hmm. So then I think back to how we've talked about the two great commandments that Jesus talks about, uh, loving God, loving others, and how he was changing the commands on loving God to loving him now, and how the neighbor is, it's more than just your fellow Israelites, which is the way it would have been interpreted or understood previously. So is this what he's talking about? Is that, is that the idea we're going after? Laurie comes up to Jesus and says, Hey, what's, shall I do an inherent eternal life? And Jesus said, Hey, well, what's written in the law? Now, what's interesting in Luke's gospel is that the man actually says, love the Lord, your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, which Mm -hmm. is interesting because this is what Jesus was doing. Mm -hmm. We noted this in Matthew and Mark, and that is Jesus had been asked earlier, what's the greatest commandment? And he tells us, oh, there's two of them. But this man has must have heard Jesus because he's now quoting at least the way Luke tells the story. Oh, here they are, Jesus, love the Lord, your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, oh, great. You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And then verse 29 says, but wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Jesus tells a parable of the parable of the good Samaritan. So verse 30, Jesus replied and said, a certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers and they stripped him and beat him. And he went off, leaving him half dead. Now, this is not an uncommon occurrence on this particular road. Mm -hmm. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho goes straight downhill. Jerusalem is about 2,900 feet in elevation. Jericho is a thousand something feet below sea level. So you're going down pretty rapidly and pretty significantly. It's about a 17 mile stretch and you're out in the desert. Once you get beyond the Mount of Olives, you're pretty much heading to the desert. So bandits being on this road, not unlikely. So this man gets beaten up, left on the side of the road. Then Jesus says, by chance, a certain priest was going down on the road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, the Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, we haven't really talked about parables yet, Vinny, but Mm -hmm. we noted that Luke has a lot of parables. One of the things that's important to recognize about parables is they have a shock value. The ending is not what the listener would have expected. Mm -hmm. We're listening to the story going, what a jerk. How could could he? He's a priest. How could he pass by on the other side? The first listeners in the first century hearing Jesus say this, they're like, that's a smart move. Mm -hmm. A good move, dude, for all kinds of reasons. One, it could be that if the man's you know, bleeding, whatever, he could get defiled, but I don't think that's really the issue. The issue was that they would often stage things like this. Mm-hmm. So someone w- would fake or feign being injured. You would get off your animal or whatever to go check on this guy's well-being, and then five other people would jump out around, from around the corner and beat you up as well. Mm-hmm. So it's possible, or actually, it's very likely that the listeners would have thought, hey, that's a good move. They're not fools actually being very wise in doing so. Then Jesus says, a certain Samaritan who was on a journey came up upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil on and wine on them. He put him on his own beast and he brought him to an inn and he took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and the denarii is a day's wages. And he gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And whatever you spend, when I return, I will repay you. So the, a Samaritan, of course, now is like, okay, the, the mood changes, not a good guy, scoundrel, not received well. Remember, 
Samaritans, you know, we talk about Samaritans and Jews in terms of this bloodline and the Jews looked upon Samaritans as having this bad bloodline, but it's religious. The mm -hmm. Samaritans have their own temple. And because they have their own temple, this is a religious division. And that goes far deeper than any ethnic division, even though Samaritans are partly Jewish and, oh, you guys mix your blood. Actually, it's a religious distinction amongst them. And those, and as we all know, religious distinctions can be much more ingrained and much mm -hmm. snarling, not well-liked, not well-respected at all. Okay, here comes the Samaritan now. So then right right away, because yeah. the term Samaritan is going to be used almost nightly on the news. And it's in our popular con context, Samaritan, a good Samaritan is like, this is what Jesus taught. Like you be a good Samaritan. And it's this idea that this is just what a good person does. The original audience is hearing this parable, which like you said, it, it's set like in a normal setting that has right. this turn. They're hearing this stuff for us in our modern context. We hear of the priest and the Levite who don't help this guy. And we are shocked. But of course, the Good Samaritan helps because that's what Good Samaritans do. It's actually the opposite in the original for, for Jesus's audience. They're thinking, oh, yeah, of course, the priest and Levite don't stop it. A Samaritan? Oh, my God. Like, this is something that's bringing up some disgust from them, yeah. right? The yes. fact that a Jewish rabbi is actually bringing this person up and it's in like a contrast. But a Samaritan like, wait a minute, you're not going to say what I think you're going to say, are you? Like, like yeah. this is going to be the mood now. Right. Yeah, that's right. In fact, and I didn't mention this, but a priest and a Levite, they're both members of the Levitical family. Mm -hmm. A priest is the one who actually does the service and services in the temple. A Levite is only one who's like an aide, a clerical aide in the temple. But a priest is from the Levitical family. So this is the priestly tribe within Israel. Mm -hmm. So these are highly respected people. And the purity laws and all that good stuff. These guys are, these are the top of the top within the culture and within the society. But a Samaritan, well, they were violently hated. Uh, in fact, in the gospel of John, they were accusing Jesus. Yeah, you guys, you're a Samaritan and you're demon possessed. Mm -hmm. It's just, that's just the way they spoke down to him on the same level was Samaritan and demon possessed. Now, what's interesting is that Luke says that the Levite and the priest both came, saw him and passed by. But the Samaritan came, saw him, and felt compassion. Mm -hmm. It's powerful because only three times in the entire gospel, Luke, does the word compassion even mm -hmm. being used by Jesus. So it's, it's a significant word. He took pity on him. Now, what happens is this man bandages his wounds, pours on oil and wine, brought him down to an inn. And an inn, we mentioned this, I think, at some point in time that there are no inns in Bethlehem because mm -hmm. Bethlehem's four and a half to five miles from Jerusalem. An inn is always a full day's journey from the previous major city. Hmm. So the fact that Jericho, 17, 18 miles, which is about a full day's journey, less than 20, 20 miles total, you're going to have an inn in Jericho because it's a full day's journey from Jerusalem or a full day's journey to Jerusalem. He banishes his wounds, pours oil and wine on him, brought him to the inn, took care of his financial obligations, gave two Daenerys and said, hey, that's enough money, surely for a couple of weeks stay. If When I come back, if you need something, let me know. Jesus then asks, answers the parable and says, okay, which of these three proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell to the robber's hands? Now, what's interesting is we don't know, it's only a parable, of course, right? We don't know the ethnicity of the man who was injured. Mm -hmm. You're assuming if you're going from Jerusalem to Jericho, he's an Israelite, he's Jewish. Mm -hmm. And it's actually surprising that the Samaritans on this path, uh, path anyways. This is the road that would be on the Jordan River Valley. So if you're going from Galilee down to, to Jerusalem, you go around Samaria and then come up into Jerusalem. Hmm. So what's a Samaritan even doing on this road to begin mm -hmm. with? But it's a parable. So we don't really care about that. The man replies then by saying, well, 
the one who showed him mercy. The question was, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers? And the man says, and notice he doesn't say the Samaritan. Yep, yep. He doesn't identify him. He's like the man who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, go and do that likewise. Mm-hmm. And what Jesus is answering now is, look, the nature of the kingdom is not this nationalistic kingdom that's only for the Jewish people. It's this kingdom of God that transcends nations and transcends ethnic these boundaries that we put up and says, this is what it means mm-hmm. uh, to be a kingdom person. And that is we care for even the least of these, even those who are marginalized by everyone else's standards. Yeah. And, and that needs to be remembered. Why is Jesus telling this parable? It's to answer a question. Who is my neighbor? Right. <laughs> and it, it's like, this is what it looks like, even to the person that despises you or your tribe says is not worthy. That is, that is your neighbor. Right. Yeah. And I didn't mention this, but the question, who is my neighbor is a question saying, all right, what sect do you belong to Jesus? Because mm-hmm. every one of the sects are going to answer that question differently. And so he's trying to define, okay, tell me a, where can I put, you know, what label can I give you? What's your denominational label? Mm-hmm. And then secondly, I also want you to define who my neighbor is. So I know who I'm supposed to love and who I'm not supposed to love. Mm-hmm. And Jesus answer is, look, the question's not, who is my neighbor? The question actually is, to whom am I a neighbor? Mm. And makes a radical transformation. Uh, in fact, there's a really interesting quote by Martin Luther King Jr. on this. Martin Luther King Jr. says, the first question which the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But the good Samaritan reversed the question. If I don't stop to help this man, mm-hmm. what will happen to him? That, that was a, really a phenomenal way of addressing the question. So mm-hmm. again, this radical transformation, radical understanding of the kingdom of God, this is not what you were expecting. This is different. This is not going to benefit you in the here and now. It's not going to help you in these ways, but that's not what it's about. It's helping the least of these, the one who has needs, the one who asks in this transformational type of life. Mm. So after the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, you know, you have one of the most popular, if, if the Good Samaritan isn't the probably the most popular parable in the Bible. Mm. 15 has the parable of the uh, prodigal son, which probably shouldn't be called that. Let's skip ahead to chapter 16, which all these parables need to be read together because that's the way Luke's putting them. Let's put that together because this is kind of a confusing parable. Jesus, he commends an unrighteous manager. Yes. All right. So Luke chapter 16 is the parable of the unrighteous steward. And I've taught courses on biblical interpretation at seminaries at a couple different places in the country. And I often use this parable for lecture day number one. Hmm. One of the objectives I have is to say, I want you guys who are training for ministry to understand that the scripture is not always easy to understand. Mm-hmm. And this parable is by far one of the most difficult parables to understand, even today for us readers, like going back to what I said earlier, that the parables often have this shock value. Like mm-hmm. what? That's not the way that it's supposed to end Jesus. But we lose that because we become so familiar with these parables and so familiar with the stories. And we think that's the bad guy. And that's the good guy when they might've had it flipped upside down. And so we lose that shock value that that's there in the parables. But this one, whether it's familiar to you or not, you're like, this doesn't make sense. I often use this then in that lecture, that first lecture, because I want you to understand, Hey, as a pastor, who's responsible for proclaiming the word of God, you need to study and work Now, when I say that, let me also note this here for the sake of the podcast. That doesn't mean that they're all like this. There are plenty of passages in the scripture 
where you, the pastor, don't have to expound upon it. You can sit in a Bible study and kind of guide a conversation and let people grapple with it and come to some of their understandings. We don't always need the pastor to pontificate what the meaning of the text is. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it'll help a lot. Now, before we get into the parable here in Luke 16, though, let me note this. Chapter breaks in the Gospel of Luke are always kind of not quite correct. Mm -hmm. You'll notice some of the chapters are really, really long. And so you mm -hmm. have to put a chapter break in there. I'm not saying it's a bad thing to have them in there. But when you open up chapter 16, verse one, notice how it says, now he was also saying to the disciples. Mm -hmm. That clearly indicates that I'm continuing the discussion from the previous chapter. So the first thing to know about the, the parable of the unrighteous steward is, whatever it is, he's turning to his disciples now to continue the conversation. So the conversation actually starts in chapter 15, verse one and two. And it says the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming to Jesus to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble mm -hmm. saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them in verse three. And he told them this parable, which is interesting because then he tells them three like, is that's it right. one parable or three parables? That, that's right. Mm -hmm. In fact, the only time there's a break between the three parables is in verse 11, where John, mm -hmm. where Luke inserts, and he said. Yes. Yeah. So there's the first parable about a, a man who loses one out of 100 sheep. Mm -hmm. Then there's a parable about a woman who loses one out of 10 coins. Mm -hmm. And then there's a parable about a, a man who loses one out of two sons. So you see know. that division getting smaller and smaller. That's right. 100 so to one, one, 10 to one, two to one. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You can tell where the ending of each one of the parables is. That's easy. Mm -hmm. So we were correct in inserting that. But nonetheless, note that Jesus tells these three parables because he's responding to the Pharisees and scribes who are saying, why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? So now Luke 16, however, he says, now he turns to his disciples and says this. So after 10 of the three parables of Luke 15, he now turns to his disciples to instruct them. So let's look at this parable here. You, you want to read it? This will be out of the ESV. Okay. Uh, he also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a man uh, who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and he said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Uh, turn in the account of your management for you. You can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my man, uh, master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. Verse four, I have decided what to do uh, so that when I am removed the, uh, from management, people may receive me into their houses. Verse five, so summoning his master's debtor one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, 100 measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the internal dwellings. What makes this parable difficult to understand is the fact that the owner commends in verse eight, it says the master praised the unrighteous steward because he acted shrewdly. You're like, no. Typically, what we do is we think, okay, well, the master, the owner, whoever that might be in the parable must represent God. Mm -hmm. And he's making this declaration of what right and what wrong mm -hmm. is. And oh, and he praises the unrighteous steward. 
right, now let's, again, let's go back to 15 for a second and get the context. In 15, Jesus is eating with the tax collectors and sinners. And remember, the whole idea was these meals are set up as these social events, tell you where you are in the social totem pole. You only invite the wealthy. You only invite the people who give you honor. You don't invite the poor. You don't invite the outcasts. So now you see Jesus living out the ethic that he's talking about, mm-hmm. namely that he's eating with tax gatherers and sinners, the outcasts, the marginalized. And no, tax gatherers are wealthy. So it's not mm-hmm. just the financially actual ones who are actually poor. Then the answer is this man has a has hundred sheep and he loses one. And when he finds it, he rejoices and says, he says, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep, which was lost. And then this woman has a coin and she loses one of her 10 coins. And it's probably her dowry. So if she gets divorced, her husband kicks her out. This is all she has left. And so she's really anxious about finding this coin. And she finds it and she says, rejoice with me for I have found the coin, which I had lost. And then this man has a son and the son walks away and wanders away. And then the son comes running home. And what does the father do? He throws a banquet for him. Well, this story takes an interesting twist because the older brother comes out and says, hey, dad, what are you doing? And the older brother refuses to go into the banquet, it says. Mm -hmm. So he makes the father come out to talk to him, which is totally disrespectful and shameful to the father. You don't summon your father out, but he won't go into the banquet. And he says, dad, what what are you doing? This this son of yours did all these things. And what's going on? For, For many years, I served you and I've never neglected a command of yours. And you have never given me a kid to be married with my friends. What, what are you doing? <laughs> Father responds in verse 32. He says, we had to be merry and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Each time that which was lost has been found and we had to rejoice. Now Jesus turns to the disciples and says, hey, let me tell you a story. In the story, you've got this manager. It's not uncommon that he's, he might be even a slave of a, in, in some sense. Certainly the guy he works for is wealthy. He's got a lot of business going on and people owe him a lot of stuff. The manager finds out, hey, dude, you've been milking the books a little bit and I don't like that. Your days are numbered. And it's a a parable, right? So in the parable, the guy's like, oh no, what am I going to do? His answer is, I'm ashamed to beg and I'm not strong enough to dig. So when I get canned, I got two options. One, I can be a beggar, but that's, that's way beneath me. I'm ashamed of that. That's honor and shame society. And the other option would be to be a day laborer, show up at the city gates every day, hope I can get work that day and make enough money to buy food that day. I don't want to do manual labor. What am I going to do? Ah, I got an idea. Here's what I'll do. So he has two guys who, who owe the master some money. And he says, here's the deal. How much do you owe? Oh, I owe this much. Okay, great. Write it for this much, you know, 100, make it 50. Okay, you owe 100, okay, make it 80, no problem. Mm. And he's totally able to do this because that's his job. What ends up at the end of the day, however, is when the master cans him, those two men owe him now. Mm. Because I forgave your debt and didn't make you pay the whole amount, you now owe me. So when my master cans me and I come knocking at your door for a place to stay and looking for a job, you're going to take me in because if you don't take me in, I notified everybody in the society, what I did for you and that you didn't reciprocate. So he's true. He acted shrewdly. And what did he do? He got himself a place to stay Mm -hmm. and a job and a way to survive. The first thing is this, the owner or the master is not praising the man for his deviousness. In fact, in the society, he didn't actually do anything wrong. He just actually acted shrewdly. 
we look at it and go, that's just not morally correct. Mm-hmm. Actually, they wouldn't have thought of that. But he acted shrewdly. So Jesus says, the master, the owner is commending him for his shrewdness. And then what Jesus says, and what he did with his shrewdness was he made friends. <laughs> and he made friends that would give him a house and a job, a place to stay and a, and a place to work. Jesus says, how about if the sons of the kingdom do the same thing? How about if you take the mammon of unrighteousness, you take money and you act shrewdly with it. But in your shrewdness, in verse 9, he says, do it so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. In other words, when you get canned, the people you helped out with your money can't take you into their homes Hmm. because they can't reciprocate. Mm -hmm. But come eternity, they'll welcome you into the eternal dwellings. Hmm. And this goes back to Luke chapter six, right? Blessed are the poor, Mm -hmm. for there is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are are, woe to you who are rich, for you have had your full already. Mm -hmm. It's this end, what we call eschatological reversal or the the end times reversal. The the wealthy, we're going to see this in the next story. The wealthy have, have it now and don't have it then. The poor don't have it now, but do have it then. And that's the whole idea. So, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Interesting. Because I think we oftentimes take this as a passage of just a general ethic or something like that, a moralistic ethic, or it's it's an example of God's grace or something like that. And you like kind of twisted into sort of, you know, what do we do with this? But really when, when you're looking at the, the picture it's, it's not that there is this altruistic just good thing that this guy was doing he was doing it to get something yeah but something in the here and now yes and exactly and so jesus answer is so you use money the same way shrewdly the same mm-hmm. way but not to get something in the here and now but something in the eternal kingdom mm-hmm. because the people you helped in the here and now can't help you now mm-hmm. so it's this ethic of saying give to the one who asks which is the poor and the one beneath you and because you'll be called sons of the most high and you'll be rewarded in the eternal kingdom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I have honestly, I've taught this for years in, in, in uh, church settings. I've taught this at, at seminaries and I asked, okay, what does it mean? I have never heard any answer that I thought was sufficient. In other words, mm-hmm. I know you're not going to clue into the correct answer unless you know the Greco Roman culture of patronage and what's going on here. Mm-hmm. I've never heard anyone come up with the correct answer yet, but the incorrect answers that they offer are just not even suitable at all either. I, I have mm-hmm. no idea how to explain this any other way to make it even make any sense at all because it's just not going to work. So it's, 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 and when you finally figure out what it means, like, oh, that's actually really cool. No, I'm, I'm curious, it, just even for a study tip for our listeners, because you're, you're making it sound like there is a correct answer here and most yeah. people miss it. How do we even go about studying that to find the correct answer? Because it's not inherent to the text itself. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure how to answer the question for the average person in the church. Here's what I would say. And that's this, when you come across something that's difficult like this and you can't make sense of it, don't force an answer. Mm -hmm. Don't go, well, I have to know the answer. And therefore this one will, will do. And when someone gives you an answer that kind of sounds not quite right, you don't need to show them up and say, Hey, dude, that's, that's just stupid. All right. But at the same time, go, all right, I'm not sure I'm going to buy that one mm-hmm. and kind of put it on your list of, of questions that you might s- seek the answer out. I was mentioning the video offline. One of the leading New Testament scholar, well, I'd say the leading New Testament scholar in the world. I have heard on a podcast before and I heard him, he was asked this question on a podcast and he gave an answer that I thought was, well, 
that's not really what is what's going on there. And mm -hmm. I was surprised because if anybody knows the system of patronage, this person would would know it. And you didn't clue in on this. So mm -hmm. don't be surprised every once in a while when you come across passages that you, you just can't figure it out. And don't accept any old answer and be okay with I don't know what the answer is. And the solution for those maybe you're a pastor or, or you're studying this to teach at a class, whatever, you just have to find a good commentary, mm -hmm. a good commentary that really grapples with it. And I can promise you that there's a lot of commentaries out there that still don't answer the question correctly. Mm -hmm. And the one by Joel Green, the New International Commentary of the New Testament, he figured it out. And I saw this in his commentary. I'm like, oh, that's totally the answer. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think even going back to your comment about how if we hear a sermon or we maybe hear something that just doesn't sit right with us in terms of an explanation with a parable, then it's like, okay, we'll just sit on it or, you know, maybe keep exploring. And first off, we're not, once again, we're not criticizing Right. Pastors, we're not, we're not telling you to be skeptical of everything your pastor is saying, uh, especially on really difficult passages. But also, I think one of the issues is, is since we just don't spend a lot of time in the gospels outside of you know Christmas and Easter, I don't think a lot of us know how to listen to the teachings of Jesus or maybe more of these longer discourses that really involve a lot of that background, that Greco-Roman background. So we don't know when something is off or when it's not. Because mm -hmm. uh, so, we're, we're just not as familiar, so we're not we're not sure what we're supposed to get with a parable. We're not sure what the right answer is even close to being. Right. Um, and so, part of it is we just need to become more more literate, especially in the Gospels outside of Christmas and Easter. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I think it's one of the tragedies that we're having now is the, is the how divided the Christian Church is, mm -hmm. because we are at the beginning of this great period of time for biblical studies where we've had a hundred years or so of incredible archaeological discoveries mm -hmm. that are just opening up the biblical world, Old and New Testament world. And in light of that, the biblical text is coming alive. And what's coming alive is this beautiful story, right? This great story of God's love and redemption and his concern for all of his creation. And we have so long read the scriptures as this moralistic guide of do this and don't do this. Since the Reformation era, Protestantism has been overly saturated with, it's all about you as an individual, mm -hmm. and it's all about your individual salvation. And so we're coming to this great era now where we can see the Bible as this great story, this great message, this revolutionary message that like you and I are talking about. And I think a lot of denominations and churches are simply not going to get this because we're so divided and we're just not listening to that voice. We're not listening to that voice. And I'm, and I'm just processing that a lot right now going, man, what a shame and how, how tragic that is. So I hope that's one of the values of a podcast like this is we're saying, hey, look, we're taking the, the fact that we've been privileged enough, and I'll say that as uh, for all that that means, mm -hmm. privileged enough to have had years to study the text and the opportunity to study the text and that we're taking advantage of the era that we're in with a hundred plus years or more of, of archeological discoveries so that we can have a much better understanding what the text says. And we're trying to give it to the common individual listener and, and, and common person. So hopefully that can be a blessing to you. And I would just encourage you, Hey, if this is really helping you, then just go let everybody else know about this podcast too. Mm -hmm. So they can, have privilege to have the, having this information also. Yeah. Okay. Verses 10 to 13, what happens after the dishonest manager? Well, notice that Jesus is continuing to talk to his disciples. So there's no, no segue by Luke. You have a red letter Bibles. It's still black, it's still red letters, no black letters are introduced. 
And Jesus now turns around and says, okay, good. Use money, wealth, the mammon of unrighteousness, in order to bless the poor and those who cannot pay you back now. And then in eternity, they're going to receive you into eternal dwellings. And then verse 20 says, because if you're faithful in this very little thing, you're going to be faithful also with much. And if you're unrighteous in a very little thing, you're going to be unrighteous also in much. If therefore you've not been faithful in the use of the unrighteous mammon, who will entrust true riches to you? And if you've not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. Hmm. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll hold to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and mammon. Mm-hmm. And again, these are, in Luke's gospel, this is strong because again, I hope that context that we've set, this Greco-Roman context of patronage and benefactors, but also the fact that he's writing this to a man named Theophilus, whom he addressed as most excellent. Theophilus is going, what does that mean for me? Mm -hmm. Let's ask that question for ourselves also when we're finished with this. So the next thing to note now is this, in verse 14, he turns to the Pharisees who were still there. So the three parables in chapter 15 were addressed to the Pharisees and scribes who are saying, why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? And he said, because I had to, because they were lost and now they're found. And then he turns to his disciples and said, hey, by the way, you know, use money for, uh, for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of the poor and the oppressed. Now, mind you, the Pharisees and scribes don't understand the parable mm-hmm. because they're not capable of understanding it because the only way you can understand a parable is if you come to Jesus and have ears to hear, and they don't. So verse 14, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things, and they were scoffing at him. Now, why do you think they were scoffing at him? Do you have any ideas? What's scoffing going to do in this cultural context? Other than shame him, maybe? Yes, exactly. Is that like a peer pressure type shame? It's how you debate. Okay. So Jesus is saying these things. We're saying these things. Oh, yeah, right. Look at Mm -hmm. this guy. Mm -hmm. And you put him down. And now the people who are listening to you have to decide, are you going to side with the man that was just put down? Are you going to side with us? Because we're obviously loftier and more respectable. So So would this be the equivalent of of like an ad hominem? Like they're just attacking him then. An ad hominem is is when you're just making a comment against the person and it's not actually engaging with their idea. Basically, like any political debate you see, this is what they're doing. Any politician, Mm -hmm. what they especially if you're a Republican, what you simply say is they're a liberal. And if you're on the left side, you say, oh, well, they're narrow minded. And Mm -hmm. yeah, we come up with these labels that silence them. But Mm -hmm. in an honor and shame culture, when you've been shamed, you've been brought down the, the social totem pole. So it's not just a dismissive comment. Mm-hmm. And that, by the way, that's a good lesson. When you're listening to political candor, make sure they deal with the argument mm-hmm. because they often don't. They, they dismiss the argument by saying, oh, well, that person is not trustworthy. Yes. And it's like, well, that's great. I don't care if they're trustworthy or not, but they said this. What's your mm-hmm. response to that? So that's why they're scoffing at him. So now Jesus turns around, but he tells now another parable about the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And you may have heard, by the way, that, oh, this is not a parable because he actually names an individual named Lazarus and Jesus never names people in parables. I think it's a parable, but we'll move on. The rich man's not named because, of course, what he wants you to do is go uh, insert your name here. The story of the parable of the rich man and Lazarus is this contrast between these two. And this rich man has luxury beyond extraordinary. 
he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, mm -hmm. gaily living in splendor every day. Poor man named Lazarus, who was at his gate, which means he has a palace because he has a gate before his home, covered with sores, longing to be fed with the crumbs which fall from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were licking his sores. Now, this man has a banquet every single day. No rich person has a banquet every single day. Mm -hmm. Even the rich can't afford that. They throw the banquets on occasions, once a week, maybe once a month for, this, for the community in which they're in that we talked about there. But notice the contrast. The rich man's clothed in wonderful garments, purple robe. The, this is extremely expensive. Lazarus's clothes, however, was, well, his sores. And even the dogs were licking his wounds. This man's food was a daily banquet. Lazarus's food was, well, we don't know what he ate, but he longed to eat what fell from the man's table. This man's home was this massive estate. And Lazarus's home was, well, he laid at the man's gate, maybe because he's crippled. What a contrast between the two. Now, there's no name for the rich man, as I mentioned earlier, because maybe Jesus was like, hey, I want you guys to listen to this. I can mm -hmm. put your name in here. But Lazarus, they both die. And it says that Lazarus is carried by the angels to Abraham's side indicates that they're sitting at a banquet table mm. and that they're reclining. And what happens is you sit at these tables when you're reclining and you lay on your left side. Mm -hmm. And that means the person to your right, if they want to speak to you, they're going to lay backwards because you're on, they're on their left. They're going to lay backwards and be, they're going to be in your chest. So if this man's in Abraham's bosom, he's at Abraham's right hand side at this heavenly banquet. So this is going to be like a position of honor then. Th this is the mm -hmm. most honored position of all honor positions because Abraham's the father of the Jewish people of mm -hmm. Israel, right? And again, it's this eschatological reversal, this end times reversal. You were poor, but now look what you got. Mm -hmm. You were rich, but now look what you got. And it says what, about the rich man, it says, uh, the rich man also died and he was carried away. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes being in torment and he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus by his side or in his bosom. And he cried out and saying, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire, which is really incredible. It's like Lazarus is still your servant. Hey, send Lazarus over. He, you know, he'll, he'll do me a favor. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Abraham's like, sorry, but remember that during your life, you received your good things. And likewise, received, Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted and you are in agony. Besides, there's a chasm between the two of us. They ain't going to work. And the man says, well, then I beg you, then send Lazarus to my father's family. Again, like Lazarus is this mm -hmm. servant that's going to go, hey, make him go run an errand again for me and at least tell my family about this. I've got five brothers. They're going to know about this place of torment. And he says, they have Moses and the prophets, verse 29. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He says, no, Father Amen. If someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said, you know, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Mm. Really powerful. So mm -hmm. this story then just illustrates this upside down nature of the kingdom. Care for the one who can't take or pay you back now. This eschatological reversal. Don't trust in riches. Don't trust in money. Don't trust in power. Use it, however, shrewdly for the sake of the one that does not have. So with this, it's speaking of being shrewd, would this idea harken back to verse nine, where it talks about, when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. It, it's still the ideas. It's the eschatological gift that you're going to be receiving. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> I don't know. Just Luke is one of those books that 
I don't know, there's just so many layers here mm-hmm. that I just think we just miss, right? And I, this has been fascinating for me. Anything else that you think, hey, let's want to address something? Well, I think the question then becomes, what do we do with this today? I think this is a good place to stop, even though this hasn't been too long of, a, of an episode, because I think we tend to, I'm, I'm giving this again from my perspective, as I, my 40 or so odd years, 45 years in an evangelical Christian community, read these stories and go, oh, that's really cool. I'm clearly the Lazarus guy. Mm-hmm. And that rich man's that somebody else. And uh, Tim Keller wrote a wonderful book called The Prodigal God. Mm-hmm. And in that, and the idea of a prodigal, by the way, is someone who lavishes excessively upon somebody else. And in the story of what we call the prodigal son, it's actually the father mm-hmm. who lavishes excessively upon the son. And what he does in that book, Tim Keller does in that book, is he really does a really good job of saying, you know what? I'm actually a Pharisee. Mm-hmm. I need to put myself in that position there. And I think especially the wealth and prosperity of the American church has to stop reading this story of like, oh, I'm on the side of the good side and mm-hmm. he's speaking to the bad side and go, okay, I'm not saying you're the bad guy. I'm just saying we got the wealth. What are we doing with it? And are we caring for the other? Are we caring for the one who is oppressed? Are we caring for the marginalized? Or are we more concerned with our comfort and security? and our personal well-being. And then what I can afford to give, I'll give also. Because mm-hmm. Jesus is clearly driving this contrast, like you can't serve God and mammon. And one of the questions then becomes, well, how does this work for us today? Because, and I don't know the answer to this. I think this is just the questions that we need to ask. In the ancient world, your social security system, your retirement system was having land and having family. If you have land, your family can work the land, whether it's grazing of animals or growing of crops. And if you have family, you have people to work the land. So now when you're too old and can't labor, they're going to provide for your well-being. And that's what, by the way, honor your father and mother means. It mm-hmm. means when they get old and they can't care for themselves, don't throw them by the curb, but care for them. What we do today, and I'm talking from my, my own perspective now, is we say, well, I need to have a retirement system in place so that when I do get to the age of retirement, I mean, for myself, it's one of those, I don't really care if I ever retire, but the reality is I may have a stroke. I may have mm-hmm. a physical disability where I have to retire. So now how do I care for myself? Cause we just don't live in this culture where, okay, I'm just going to move into my kid's home and they're going to take care of me. Because obviously right now, I'm not sure my kids could even afford to do that. Mm-hmm. So my wife and I have to have some measure of, of retirement assets in place. But I wonder if we think, okay, I'll have this much in place so that I can have this standard of living. Mm -hmm. And that's one question is, do I have to have that standard of living? Can I get away with less? And if I can get away with less or lower standard of living, then I can give away more. Secondly, I think we, do we over budget for that Mm. and end up with an excess? And we find out at age 80, oh, I still got plenty of money in the bank and I'm only going to live a few more years. Okay, I guess I could have given all that money away but all these years. And the reality is there's so many ministries and people in need that we could be doing so much more for now. Mm-hmm. And so it, I, I recognize the fact this is a difficult question. I don't know the answer to it, 
in Jesus's day, the answer was, if you have anything surplus, you know, you can give it away because tomorrow's meal will come tomorrow. But that's not as easy to do today. I'll just jump in on this because I know that, especially on this topic, being married to an, a first-generation American, my in, my in-laws are Portuguese. It's interesting because in in that context, there's no question right. about what happens with family, right? With with the older with the older generation when they cannot take care of themselves, they move in, right? Oh, gosh. It, the idea of like sending them off to a home or something like that, or relying on the system that just doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And so you, you got to wonder, okay, how much of that is, is just a cultural thing. Right. Is, is it one of those, there's a right and a wrong way, or there's just cultural traditions that are, that are fine. I mean, I think of even in, in other cultures where I have neighbors who are Indian, they have four daughters, like two of the daughters who graduated high school that, you know, a number of years ago, they still live at home. Cause that's mm-hmm. until they get married. That's what they would do. Like, right. you know, in our American culture, we say, well, no, they need to get on on their own and experience yeah. adulthood and, and blah, blah, blah. So there is that, okay, what is a cultural norm? And then what is just a good ethic? When I say a good ethic, I mean, what, what is a, what is a Jesus ethic? What is a biblical ethic that you ought to live by? I struggle with because I mainly, cause I come up against my Americanism. Uh, so even knowing my wife for 25 years, I, we started dating in high school and knowing her family, I still come up against that where one mm. day, what if her family or my family needs to move in with us? Like, am I prepared for that? Right. <laughs> where she would be the one who have no issue with it. And I would struggle. Mm, uh, and so how much of that is Vinny needing to be refined for, as from his Americanism or Vinny needing to be sanctified as a selfish guy? Right. Right. Yeah. I don't know that we're going to come up here and say, this is the answer. Yeah. I think we recognize the fact. And I, I think I respect personally, I respect more of those communal cultures mm-hmm. than I do the individualism of the culture that I was raised with. And I, I probably raised Tony and I probably raised our kids that way, more individualistic, but I don't think that we're saying that there is an absolute answer to this. I think it's a question that we need to wrestle with, but I just think that we have too much surplus and thinking I need this for my own well-being and for my retirement, whatever that might mean. And I think Jesus' answer is, look, I'm going to give. And if you're faithful with it, I'm going to give you more. Maybe. Mm -hmm. But if you're not faithful with it, I might take it away. Mm -hmm. And again, how much of that is eschatological? How much of that he's taking away in, in eternity? It's... The kingdom of God is this radical reversal in which Jesus says, follow me, go sell all you possess and give to the poor and come follow me. And we do a really good job of saying, well, he doesn't actually mean that literally for all of us. Some of Mm -hmm. you are called to do that, but some of you aren't. And that's true. But then we're like, okay, but because I'm not, then I can hold on to the rest of my wealth. Like, no, not necessarily what he means by that. I don't know. I, I, you can see I'm still grappling. With, I don't know the answers. I don't, and I don't think I want to know the answers because I don't want to get up here and say, I think the answer for you might be different for me. And the answer for that person over there might be, dif- might be different for somebody else. So you just can't get up on a pulpit or on a podcast and give an answer because mm-hmm. I think it is different. Yeah. But I, th- I, think I think what you are saying is 
what you're saying is Jared, Justin, Jordan, you guys need to start saving up because mom and dad are moving home. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, yeah. But, but it's right. Cause this becomes one of the difficulties from an application standpoint, when you can look to the old Testament, where it's very clear yeah. on what you do in an issue like this. And when you say, okay, that's also law, that societal law and the law represents the will of God, but we don't live under that anymore. So what are the applications you make that says, okay, this is wisdom or this represents the will of God, even though we're not living in that system. Uh, and so, you know, how far do you push it? Well, the, the Christian children are bound then to take care of Christian parents. Like, is that what it's saying? Or you know, like, it's, it's one of those things, like how far do you push this? And is it meant yeah. to be more of a principle or is it meant to be like a firm ethic and law? Yeah, I don't think it's meant to be a firm ethic in law. I think yeah. we need to recognize the fact that this is being spoken at a cultural moment also. Mm-hmm. And we can't enshrine that cultural moment as that's the right cultural moment for all cultural moments. Yeah. So yes, Jesus was speaking to a communal society. And in a communal society, this is a little bit easy to apply. Much of American culture is Western individualistic culture. And this becomes a much more difficult question. Mm-hmm. What I'm trying to say is, I just don't think we're answering, answering the question very well. Mm-hmm. I think, and I don't know what the line is, and I don't know where the line is for you or for me or for anybody else for that matter. I'm struggling with this in my own life, as Tony and I grapple with this in our own lives. But I'm just trying to say, I don't think we're grappling with it very well enough. And that, that's what I want to encourage you to do. Mm-hmm. But let me know, by the way, a quote. Uh, Second Clement, and uh, Clement was according to church history, one of the, one of the bishops of Rome around the turn of the first, second century. So mm-hmm. just after the time of the new Testament, and he makes this comment, he says in second Clement 13 verse four, he says, when they hear from us that God says, quote, it's no credit to you if you love those who love you, but it's a credit to you that if you love your enemies and those who hate you, when they hear this and they wonder at the extraordinary goodness But when they see that we not only do not love those who hate us, we do not even love those who love us. Mm. They laugh at us in scorn and the name of God is blasphemed. Mm -hmm. I think, Mm. yeah, yeah. So somehow we need to to go, you know, I said, why do you worry about food? I take care of the birds of the air. Why do you worry about clothing? I take care of the lilies of the field. I think also, you know, we talked about our last episode here and we'll finish up now. A lot of other examples where we hold on to things like I don't want immigrants coming into my country because it's going to make this country unsafe for me. And I think my thought is, I don't I just don't think that's the way the Christians should think. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that Americans can't think that way. I'm just saying Christians can't. Now, I know Mm -hmm. as Mm -hmm. I'm both. So I have to wrestle with this. But I think my faith tells me my first concern is for the person that's oppressed mm-hmm. and the person that's fleeing persecution or suffering or tragedy or, or war or conflict or whatever. That should be my first concern. And then, yeah, I, when I say let them in this country, I do hope this country advocate, um, vets them out well and takes care of them. But I, I think that's another example where, yeah, okay, so great if they come in and they take all of our social aid and our government becomes broken, they have to tax me more. Okay. I, I kind of think I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if that's an application of this also. Yeah. And I think the key is, and we could finish on this. It's not necessarily about the right answer. Right. But because you might end up in the same spot that you started with. 
but are we actually wrestling with it? Right, right. Or are we just presupposing, nope, this is the way it has to be because whatever, and, and actually your influence might have come from popular culture in some way, whether it's politics or whatever. And I think the journey matters as much as the destination. Not that the, not that every destination is the right destination. You know, we're not trying to be relativist here. Right. Because neither you and I are. But the journey matters as well. And that that the journey is what shapes us. Right. But again, I think the journey is different than what we've been told all these many years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the journey is much more radical. It's also much more um, uh, of a blessing because mm-hmm. blessed are those who do this. And it's also more freeing and more liberating. Now, I know we've both said that we're going to end with this. Yeah. But let's end with this. <laughs> ah, there you go. It's your podcast. Like the preacher well, saying, yeah. one, uh, one, one, more, more one more thing, right? Yeah. When the preacher says one more thing, it's like, yeah, one more thing until I think of something else. Mm-hmm. But chapter 17, the section doesn't end. So we read the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, but the, par- the story doesn't end because 17 verse one says, and he said to his disciples. Mm-hmm. So remember, he was talking to the Pharisees when he gave the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Now he turns to his disciples. Verse three of chapter 17, be on your guard. Verse five, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Mm-hmm. In other words, they began to recognize. Now, again, we've said all along, they don't understand. They're not getting it. Maybe a little, you know, the story in in the gospel of Mark of the blind man that gets healed kind of in two phases. Do you see anything? I see men, but they look Mm -hmm, like trees. mm -hmm. Okay, let me spit on you. Now do you see anything? Oh yeah, I see everything clearly. That might've illustrated the fact that that the disciples were kind of coming to a slow understanding and they don't yet see everything clearly. And we know, of course, that they don't get everything clearly until the book of Acts when the Holy Spirit comes. But the disciples are going, okay, increase our faith. Because if, if I get at all what you're telling me, I need more faith to do this. Hmm. If that's their answer, then how much more of that is an answer for us as well? Absolutely. And then the answer becomes, and rely upon the Holy Spirit, which is central to the Gospel of Luke. Yeah, we will end on that. <laughs> No more postscripts. Well, hey, we made it through the episode. I don't know how, <laughs> but we made it through this one. 200 is a memorable one. And we're, listen, we have a few more episodes on Luke. Yes, I got do. some great scholars lined up. We as some a great guest. Great guests coming yeah. up pr- pr- very soon. It's going to be really cool. And yeah. they're going to help us grapple with this even more. Yeah. So it'll be good and challenging and it'll challenge both of us. That'll be good. So, and uh, keep following along and we'll keep plugging away through the gospel of Luke. See you again next time, guys. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.